sacrificing our education to protest against your inaction. Ask the EU to stop caging animals. To reconcile the economy with our planet. Set a timeline for fossil fuel phase-out. To master the challenges of the digital age. None of the European nations will be part of the G8. It is about where we want to go and who we want to be. Hello there, welcome to Citizen Central, a podcast series all about the first transnational democracy instrument in the world, the European Citizens Initiative. Brought about back in the Lisbon Treaty, the ECI gives people the chance to pitch their own EU policies to the European Commission by gathering one million signatures from seven EU states. My name is Maeve McMahon, I'm an Irish reporter in Brussels, and on Citizen Central, I'll be finding out what exactly the ECI is, how you can launch or support one, and what drives people to give up their time and energy for a cause they care deeply about. Now in today's chapter of Citizen Central, first we head to Germany, where Gregory Engels is campaigning to amend the copyright law with his ECI, Freedom to Share. Then we'll be back to Belgium to meet Julie Steendam, who with her ECI, A Right to Cure, is asking the Commission for a transparent, affordable distribution of the vaccine all around the world. Welcome to Citizen Central. Now, ours is the century of intellectual property. We create more than ever, but mainly don't get paid for it. Probably one of the reasons our next guest is asking the European Commission to amend copyright law in the EU. Gregory Engels, first, tell us more about yourself and your involvement in the CCI Freedom to Share. My name is Gregory Engels. I live in Germany. I myself, I'm 45 years old. I am a business professional. I'm a manager uh, in IT projects. And I also involved in the Pirate Party of Germany and have been running as a candidate to the Bundestag and European elections, have served on the city council, and I'm also involved in international network of pirate parties worldwide. Uh, serving uh, at the board of the Pirate Parties International. And I got in contact with people organizing Freedom to Share European Citizen Initiative back in uh, 2019, I guess, in November in Milan. We have agreed on, on trying to collect one million signatures to change the current copyright to allow private file sharing of copyrighted materials and at the same time create provisions to fairly um, reimburse the content creators. Now, what's the objective of your campaign and how does it differ from current copyright law? The question that we're asking is if people would like to change the current copyright in a way that the downloading, for private reasons, downloading of copyrighted materials would be legal. And on the same time, that the European Commission would create provisions to reimburse the content creator in a fair way. So basically, that's how the internet works since the 90s. The content distributors calls those internet users pirates. So I can uh, buy a book, I can give it to friends to read, but if I buy a movie on uh, uh, Amazon in the digital download, I cannot give it to friends, so I'm not allowed. And this contradicts what people expect from property and, and how people feel. And we just want to reinstate the rules for, for normal people to use the internet in a way that they like to use. At the same time, um, there would be no provision 
for or no legitimation for the upload filters that would install severe surveillance and also um, methods of censorship to proofread everything you ever upload to the internet. So because now it's been legitimized by um, the claim that you are not allowed to down upload anything that contains copyrighted material that you not own. And if you say there would be a blanket provision that says everything is allowed, that there is no copyrighted material that you're not allowed to upload because there is other ways how creators get paid, uh, then there is no need to monitor um, all the uploads. There's no need to create censorship and uh, we want a free internet without censorship and without filters. And who do the current copyright laws benefit? Do you think? It's complicated, but I think the biggest, the people who benefit most are the big um, companies uh, like Hollywood or news corporations. Uh, and these are also the one who have to spend a lot of lobby money to try to push new legislation, as we saw with the Digital Services Act, uh, with Article 13, Article 11. Um, like the news corporations, uh, like the Rupert Murdoch or Time Warner, uh, Fox. And uh, this is the biggest player. Also Disney, of course. And um, I think some of the network um, platforms like Netflix um, are on the verge to, to getting the big cut of the piece of the, of the pie. They become established. And um, there is like, basically, if you're a musician, you have to be on Spotify. Otherwise, nobody will ever know you and the money uh, of the subscriptions um, goes to Spotify that does not really goes to the um, to the authors, to the musicians. So this is like a promoting, more promoting channel for them um, than, rather than um, getting um, the money. Do you want to abolish or abuse copyright? No, no, not at all. I, I think that the current copyright law is unfair and I invite the people to go and sign the petition, uh, sign the European Citizen Initiative in order to change that laws. And also, like we saw in 2019, as we had this big street protest against uh, the Article 13, against the upload filters, uh, this is a topic that interests a lot of people uh, because it is happening at the core of their lives. Because a lot of people consider the internet as part of their digital persona, and so it's where they live. And so the rules that in invade what they can do and how they can express themselves on the internet are uh, really being perceived as, as life-threatening for some people. And so I'm not saying that those rules are unfair in a way that we should like not obey them. I'm telling that we have a massive interest to make the rules right. Or I say make copyright right again. So this is, this is what I'm trying to say here. Have you thought about this compensation system? Our proposal doesn't have um, a specific provision for how this compensation should lack. Uh, we just asked the European Commission to create such proposal that would compensate the content creators in a fair manner. Since this is a complicated matter and it's a complicated law and there's a lot of proposals on the table, we don't want to favor any one of them specifically. I can say that my personal favorite would be an ad, um, internet advertisement tax because it's quite it's where the money is basically and it's uh, it's clear that uh, that that's where the money is made from and then it would not make anything much expensive and that's, uh, but um, the commission could decide otherwise and create some other provision okay thank you so much for joining us thank you for for your time best of luck now copyright is a pretty complex topic but it's also a fascinating one so to get more from an expert on copyright we're off now to madrid to meet javier de la cueva a lawyer and doctor in philosophy 
but also a professor of intellectual property at the Instituto Empresa, or the Spanish Institute of Business. Javier, thanks for joining us here on Citizen Central. It's an honor to be able to participate. First, tell us more about yourself. Well, I am a Spanish uh, intellectual property lawyer, but as the law didn't give me the possibility to make proper questions, what I did is I studied this PhD in philosophy and everything related to culture, knowledge, epistemology, the digital, and all these new things that we have to reframe, to rethink, and to reconsider. Right. Where does copyright come from? We, we have a big branch that is called intellectual property. There was this question that was made under John Locke that was, okay, do we have the right to be the owners of uh, the sweat of the bro? And uh, they said, well, when you work some common good, you go and you harvest. So you are, well, sweating because you harvest. Then you are entitled to obtain and make yours that object that is the product of your work. So the question was, can we do exactly the same with non-material things? This appeared when the printing press, this invention, it made copies. So what we could do is we could make books. So from here came two main fields of the intellectual property. One was the rights over the inventions. And the second was the rights over the copies we make of something that we invented, we thought we discovered or we drafted. That we could say is the panorama where the right to own, not ideas, but the things that you do with ideas came from. Wow. But when speaking about cultural copyright, whose brow is sweating? Is it the publishers, the distributors or the creators? If there is a constant in nowadays is that we are entering into non-logical world. Here we are making an interview. So we both are making a copyright work and it is a collaborative work because you and me, we are making the questions, we're having this dialogue, etc., etc. So then I get, I am interviewed by a newspaper. So I give the newspaper mainly the whole part of the content and then the newspaper puts a paywall and owns the content, but the content was mine. So, okay, the richness in internet is to obtain visitors. We are selling attention. So now who's going to pay for that attention is the one who sends you the attention. That is to say, Google News. We are asking people money for something that we should pay for. We should pay for the attention. And how does the copyright business really work? So intellectual property is not a matter of how much do the authors obtain or not. Journalists don't obtain, scientists don't obtain, actors, singers, etc., etc. They obtain very little. Publishers are very, very, they receive a lot of money. And there is, of course, a very, very interesting group who do not create absolutely anything related to intellectual property but they are the managers of the intellectual property. And that is an inequality problem. What's your take anyway on this ECI? If you want to find certain films, you're not going to be able to find them in those commercial platforms. They are not an HBO, they are not a Netflix. Should I then go to peer-to-peer -peer networks? Oh, and I will be able to find them there. So in that sense, they are not in the other platforms because they do not make money because nobody's interested in Seven Samurai from Akira Kurosawa. So the most part of the culture is nowadays not producing any kind of commercial revenue. And there is a second aspect related to these uh, sharing activities. This kind of technology that is made to pirate, it promotes technological advances in order to give the user a better experience. The legal offer comes because there was a non-legal offer. 
Netflix would have never appeared if peer-to-peer networks would not have existed. So the whole history of intellectual property is full of waves of piracy. So making the machine, making the counter machine. That's mind-blowing. If I take a stone and I find an enemy in a place, I know that certain uses of the stone with that enemy are going to be a crime. The law is clear. And I sense that law in a very, very easy way that is rooted in my human instinct. Like when I've got a phone and I enter into a website, I do not know if I am infringing a law or not because I am unable to know the law and to understand the law because the law is absolutely complicated. Can we live in a world where we do not know as citizens if the tools that we have are making us delinquents are making us criminals or are making us infringers of something. This is something that attacks directly what a legal norm has to be. Because a legal norm must be general and must be understandable by a normal citizen. Because if not, you do not know if you are living legally or not. And just, will you be signing the CCI? I cannot say how I'm going to sign it or not, because as academic also, uh, I have the obligations to make a lot of questions. Nevertheless, they do have all my sympathy. I am going to read it in full, and after, I will decide if I sign it or not. Okay, Javier, thank you so much for joining us here on Citizen Central. Thank you to you for your such interesting conversation. In really, really a pleasure. Now, COVID has turned our world upside down, but vaccination campaigns must be widely spread in order to be effective. Probably one of the reasons for our next guest, CCI. Julie, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, nice to meet you. Thanks for inviting me. First, tell us more about Right to Cure. The Right to Cure, ECI, or as we also call it, the No Profit on Pandemic uh, Citizens Initiative, has the ambition to force the European Commission to make sure that all vaccines and treatments that have been developed to protect ourselves against the coronavirus are available to everyone on the whole planet at a low cost. Just tell us, what are the four key points that you're asking from the Commission? Well, first of all, we are asking the European Commission to do something about the intellectual property rights. Because now the situation is that vaccines, some treatments have been developed by private companies like Pfizer, Moderna, the ones we all know but that they also have the full control on how much is being produced, uh, at which price these are being sold, and who gets them and when. This is because they have a monopoly rights on this. And this has to be changed in order to increase global production. So this is our first demand, to make sure that intellectual property rights, patents, are not an obstacle for the global distribution of vaccines. Second of all, we also want to do something about the lack of transparency in the ongoing negotiations between pharmaceutical companies and the European Commission. Because actually it was only due to leakages or some news that came out that we were aware of the price that we were actually paying for these vaccines. And also there are some conditions in the contracts between those companies and our own governments that we are not aware of. And that, from a democratic point of view, should be public and not be considered as secrets. So we want full transparency on those negotiations, on those contracts and on the pricing. And thirdly, we also, of course, need those vaccines not only to be available, but also to be affordable. Lots of our societies, families, economies have lost billions through this pandemic. 
So we really need to make sure that every money that we have is available to get back on track with our lives. At the current time, it has been calculated that we're actually paying five times the price of the actual production costs of the vaccine. And during a pandemic and during one of the biggest economical crises that we have seen in the last decades, this is unacceptable. So we also want some conditions on the affordability and the pricing of those vaccines. And then first of all, we of course also want the European Commission to defend all these positions in international bodies, such as the World Health Organization and the World Trade Organization. And I imagine when you launched the CCI, the reaction must have been instant. Have you had any feedback from the institutions or from politicians themselves? Well, that is what you would expect, you know, if you launch an initiative that says everyone should have access to COVID-19 vaccines and treatments, that reaction would be, yeah, you're right. This is actually in our like basic human rights. But this wasn't quite what we have hoped for. And it's really something that would surprise us a bit. Like we know what the situation is, the pandemic. We know how to treat people, to protect people. We now have a solution. We have well-functioning vaccines available. We know how to make them. So wouldn't it be the most logical thing to do to make sure that this technology, these products are available at the fastest way, at the lowest price possible to the rest of the population. But however, this is not the case. We can see that the European Commission is actually just taking over the discourse provided by pharmaceutical companies defending their right to make profits, defending their right to keep a full control over these products. And this is quite disturbing to tell you so. We are now at a point in the pandemic that the European population has been almost fully vaccinated, fully protected, or at least the people that accepted to get the vaccine. But the larger part of the world, especially low-income countries, do not have access to the vaccine. And this just doesn't make any sense because the vaccine can only work if a large part, say 70% at least of the population, uh, has got a chance to have a shot so we can actually stop the spreading of the virus. So we have a complete unequal distribution of this vaccine, a really vaccine apartheid, as even the director of the World Health Organization called it. And this is just a disturbing reality to say so when we know that we actually have a solution available. Now, the urgency to produce the vaccines required so much public investment. Do you think those IP rights should be public? When we go back, the whole vaccine, the development, the research, the production capacity, big parts of this have actually been funded by public money. European Commission made a call, other scientists as well, for the bigger pharmaceutical company to get ready because a new coronavirus might pop up, might be more threatening than the ones that we knew before, like SARS or MERS, who are from the same family. One and a half years ago, it was clear, okay, we have this COVID-19 spreading fast, we need to have a vaccine. So there was a sense of urgency and public institutions like the European Commission, um, governments provided lots of public funding to pharmaceutical companies asking them, okay, now you have to prioritize on making a vaccine so we can get out with this as soon as we can. BioNTech, that had a collaboration or still has with Pfizer, received 375 million from the German government to make a vaccine. So this is all public money, taxpayers' money that has been invested in this vaccine. This vaccine is already paid for by us. So it should also be owned by us. We should have the full control about it. But the reality nowadays is that we're actually paying two to three times for this vaccine. We paid for the research that has 
often already been done at public universities. We paid for the development in the last months and we're actually also paying for the risks because the contracts also say that if something happens, if the vaccines would have some kind of hidden effect, nothing to be concerned of, but just if, then the costs of any claims will have to be covered by ourselves. So we're actually paying all the costs possible connected to the vaccine, but the possibility of profit is fully for the pharmaceutical companies. And this is a completely unbalanced situation. Now, your ECI is so topical that reading the headlines every day about COVID must be quite a job. How do you live this evolving situation? The process has been a roller coaster of emotions, to say the least. There was the optimism when we started. When we start phrasing our demands, we were quite prepared for any possible scenario. Because we're not only asking the European Commission to make sure that every European gets vaccinated or has access to protection, to treatments. We're also asking this for the whole planet. But at the same time, we are still being plundered by pharmaceutical companies in our social security because they are actually increasing their prices as the pandemic goes on. We're also still asking for more transparency on those contracts. So this is, of course, also a very motivating thing to do that even during our campaign, even before we have those one million signatures, we already have some small victories. And has the press reacted to your ECI? Yeah, indeed. We have, I think, one of the biggest um, challenges for any campaign is to do the agenda setting. The change that you want to see is also an issue for the general public, that people are talking about this, that they are aware of it, and that they, of course, are also triggered to do something about it. In our case, of course, the pandemic was all over the news. It was in everyone's minds, but it still wasn't evident to get our campaign or our call to action to sign our petition in the press. Like this is an extra challenge you have. You can have the press talking about vaccine rollouts, the profits that have been made. But still, what we really want to do is also the press talking about, hey, you are a European citizen. There's actually something you can do. You, there's a petition that you can sign. But we are still trying to find new ways, um, new actors, new hooks to talk about it. And the big thing that we're focusing on now is actually the possibility to have physical gatherings, physical meetings. So we're focusing on that. What have you learned in the process? With everyone together, we learned about, a lot about online campaigning, like trying to be creative, trying to have like a person-to-person -person approach, even in an online modus, which is can get quite interesting. Um, but I think one of the most surprising things for me, or, or one of the things I learned, was to learn more about how European politics and how European democracy works. A resolution was adopted in the European Parliament stating that there is actually a majority of those elected members of European Parliament in favor of lifting intellectual property rights on COVID-19 vaccines. And this is amazing because it means we already have democracy at our side. But we saw in practice that this hasn't led to any change in the position of the European Commission. So this shows that we need some more power and this is where the citizens' initiative comes in, because this is a tool to really show the people power that we have. The fact that a majority or a big part of European population is also in favor of this. Like the European Parliament has played its role, they will stay our ally for sure, but we also need to put extra pressure by engaging citizens, and by making sure that this European citizens' initiative is successful. Okay, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, it was a big pleasure. Best of luck.
But for more on this, we can head now to Geneva to meet the councillor of the World Trade Organization, Roger Kampf, who specialises in health and intellectual property and in the last months has been working on the front line of the vaccine trade and distribution. Could you explain to us first who developed the vaccines with what financial support? Today, we see a situation of about 20 to 25 companies which are active in vaccine development. There's a strong concentration in the United States, in the EU, India and China. Uh, In terms of financial support, it's probably fair to say that the US and Germany were by far the largest investors in vaccine R&D. If you take the so-called advanced purchase agreements, so i.e. as a government you buy a vaccine which is not even approved for human consumption, uh, you can also consider this to be an investment in R&D. And if you do take this into account, we actually get into slightly different configurations and numbers where the US and the EU certainly account for the majority of the funding. So 40 billion US dollars coming from from those sources. Um, Now, the funding went primarily to private companies. Recipients of R&D investments uh, for COVID-19 vaccines are concentrated in a relatively small number of high-income countries, uh, Western European countries, the US, and Canada probably sort of ranking first. Uh, Most countries have invested, uh, interestingly, in companies or research institutions from their own countries. In the case of the EU, for example, you see that investments were mostly made in European institutions, as well as in France and Germany. And how do you see the role of intellectual property rights regarding the development and access to vaccines and other critical COVID-19 health technologies. Do you think they represent an enabling factor or rather a barrier to develop, manufacture and distribute these products in a timely and equitable manner? The intellectual property system as such is part of the broader infrastructure for innovation in health technology, in the management of collaborations and also integration of diverse inputs to produce the final vaccine or other soft technology. So the COVID-19 soft pandemic has brought into sharp relief uh, the need for a strong and balanced uh, linkage between the support for innovation on the one hand and partnerships and the uh, soft insurance of swift and, and equitable access to the outcome of those results. On the enabling I would say uh, certainly uh, sort of collaboration among health technology developers, governments and other key stakeholders, including the sharing and pooling of technology and know-how is key to addressing the pandemic. And the need for, for partnership and collaboration has been repeatedly referred to, including by manufacturers from developing countries. I think the the idea of collaboration and sharing is also deeply rooted in the objectives of uh, the the agreement we are administering at the WTO, the TRIPS agreement, um, according to which IP production should contribute to the promotion of technological innovation on the one hand, but also to the transfer and dissemination of technology. Also on a company-to-company basis, where, for example, Johnson & Johnson has concluded an agreement with Aspen in South Africa uh, to provide for end-to-end manufacturing in South Africa for the entire South African continent. For example, there has been a conclusion of a licensing agreement between the WHO COVID-19 technology access pool and the medicines patent pool with the Spanish National Research Council for the non-exclusive royalty 
the free use of uh, COVID-19 serological antibody technology. And the license, interestingly, also provides technology transfer and know-how to the medicines patent pool and training to, to use those technologies. And there may be indeed uh, situations um, where there's a need, need to deal with intellectual property rights, which would otherwise present a barrier to access. And um, to do so, a number of policy options, or if you want to call it flexibilities, are available to WTO members under the TRIPS agreement. Um, and for example, when it comes to patent rights, uh, members can issue licenses, which would allow the use of the protected invention by a third party or by the, the, the government without the, the owner of that right uh, authorizing this use. So you, you have sort of this and, and other sort of exceptions and limitations to existing rights enshrined in the agreement. Now, what I think is important is that uh, countries probably look into streamlining the use of those flexibilities. And what is particularly important is you need to implement those flexibilities in a way in national law, which allows an, an easy use uh, of, of them, um, because otherwise we can have the nicest policy options in the TRIPS agreement and they won't serve any purpose at national level uh, on the ground if they are not properly implemented. And maybe there are also situations in which intellectual property rights do not cause a barrier because collaboration is simply not needed because the originator company, for example, has declared uh, that it will not enforce its existing patent rights during the pandemic. And the technology which is needed is in the public dom domain. And there's a, a concrete example also in South Africa for this. There's a company called uh, the AfriGen Biologics and Vaccines in Cape Town. And they've clearly said, well, we, we actually can produce a copy of the Moderna vaccine uh, without collaborating with the company. Why? Because all the technical information we need uh, for this to happen is actually in the public domain. We can access it and therefore collaboration is not needed. And just tell us about the work being carried out by the WTO to provide a credible response to the pandemic. I, I think there's convergence among WTO members that uh, we need a credible and meaningful response by the WTO to the pandemic. And this as soon as possible. So the work which is done among members to come up with a response to uh, the pandemic includes a political declaration on the WTO's response to the pandemic and an action plan uh, in terms of pandemic preparedness. Why did intellectual property not find its way into this political declaration so far? Because we had the parallel process uh, of the TRIPS Council, which is the body administering the agreement on trade-related intellectual property rights, uh, so heavily engaged in the discussion on uh, the, the two proposals. And one proposal is uh, sort of initially coming from India and South Africa. And that was essentially to waive certain TRIPS obligations uh, in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic. On the other hand, you have a European Union proposal and which uh, suggests uh, not only to reaffirm that members are free to use you know, the existing flexibilities, uh, but also to clarify certain uh, TRIPS flexibilities. Now, while members have sort of been sharing the common goal of providing timely and equitable access to uh, sort of needed countermeasures, um, 
they continue to disagree, and here we come to the heart of the discussion, to disagree on which of the proposals, or possibly even a combination of those proposals, is the most effective way to address inequitable distribution of vaccines and other COVID-19 products. And this is rooted, I think, deeply rooted in different views regarding the role of the IP system. While vaccine equity should be first and foremost seen as a public health objective, it is also a prerequisite for strong and sustained economic recovery. And this explains why the WTO DG and, and the Secretariat's work have focused on an integrated approach to secure the development, manufacturing, and timely and equitable distribution of COVID-19 vaccines. In doing so, we have, however, encountered a number of, of challenges, and that includes uh, supply chain bottlenecks, you know, where things are not working, so the trade flow is not as it should be. Um, we actually face problems in identifying what are the critical inputs for vaccine manufacturing. And that is critical for customs to know, uh, because, for example, if you want to use green lanes for a, sort of a quick importation of procedure, you will have to know which products are actually needed for vaccine production. Of course, transparency is a big issue, but also production and delivery schedules, uh, because very often uh, there's been reporting in Nigeria about the country not being able to absorb uh, the vaccines they were receiving. But one of the problems was the very short expiry dates. Um, and so you, the better we know about uh, sort of vaccine production and delivery schedules, the better we can coordinate and make sure that the recipient countries get the vaccines at a moment in time when they can actually then distribute them to, to uh, the population. So we have done in cooperation with the World Customs Organization, but also the private sector, a compilation of uh, trade-related bottlenecks and trade-facilitating measures. And that is essentially to assist our members uh, to see what could be done in order to ensure that you know, trade flows are as smooth as possible. I'm just curious, had you ever heard of the ECI before we called you? <laughs> The, the answer is, uh, to be frank, yes, because as a good uh, European lawyer, uh, you follow the years of legal developments. And I think the Lisbon Treaty has been one of the important milestones by which I understand you know, this initiative was uh, first introduced. Uh, so the, 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 the mechanism or the instrument as such was known to me. And what we all learned from this pandemic, do you think? I mean, there's never been such a spirit of collaboration, be it uh, between international organizations, be it uh, you know, among private sector actors and and uh, whoever is involved in this. I think there's a huge willingness to work in, in teams in order to face this pandemic uh, and put an end to it. Thank you so much for your time, Roger, and for sharing your knowledge here on Citizen Central. Great. Thank you so much. Well, that brings this edition of Citizen Central to an end. A massive thank you to our guests and, of course, to you for listening. And if you fancy finding out a little bit more about any of these ECIs, do check out our show notes. You can also take a look at the ECI website or follow the ECI's individual social channels. And, of course, if you want to propose your very own ECI, you can head over to the ECI forum to learn about that and how to get started. I'm Maeve McMahon, and you've been listening to Citizen Central.